0: The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the Donate button on the website or
1: in the show notes.
0: This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. The photograph of the body of a young Syrian boy on a Turkish beach brought the world's attention to the Syrian refugee crisis. Though millions of people have been fleeing Syria since the beginning of that country's civil war in 2011, it didn't evoke the visceral reaction that many felt when their eyes fell on the photograph of a dead boy whose name was Adam Kurdi. That image personalized the plight of over four million refugees. As they try to escape the turmoil of their homeland to try and find safety and a future in not only the border countries of turkey iraq and lebanon but increasingly european countries including greece germany great britain and also here in the united states however xenophobia and concerns about terrorism have placed the fates of these people in interminable limbo it was this crisis that led photographer sven marcus richter and Riley Draper to visit one of the many refugee camps, this one in Greece. Their goal is to help tell the stories of these people, making them more than just a statistic or a political football. It's my hope that this conversation will encourage you to find out more about a crisis that deserves more attention than just the occasional headline. Sven, welcome to the Candid Frame. Thanks for for reaching out. I've been looking forward to
1: uh, talking to you. So so welcome. Yeah, thanks thanks a lot for the for the opportunity to, to talk about the topic today. I was really surprised after reaching out to you that I, I had a response fairly very quickly actually, and um, and that I ended up being here on the show. That is that is really incredible. I've been listening to the show for three years now, and it's influenced me in a big way. So it's it's really incredible to be part of it. Well, when I saw the work um, that 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 you were doing, I
0: definitely wanted to have a chance to talk to you. But before we get into that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because what was interesting about your story is you didn't start off your professional career as a photographer, but rather as a as a doctor. Tell me, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So after I I finished school, I was thinking about what to do, and I actually for some reason I had the feeling that photography might be. A good thing for me, but I I never owned a camera. I just took some photos with my old grandfather's point and shoot. I just had a feeling it would be something for me, but obviously I didn't have a portfolio, and um, I knew my my parents wouldn't be very supportive in, in if I were to go in that direction. So um, I thought, what what else could I do? And hey, who doesn't want to be a doctor, right? So um, picked med school. Yeah, well, it turns out that's actually me who doesn't want to be a doctor. And, but I only discovered that after after working for two years at, the, at a big university hospital here in, in Munich. So I was looking around, what could, else could I do in in the field of medicine? And um, I came across the, the topic of public health and global health. And that was something I got interested in when I was traveling in Latin America during med school, when I was um, able to witness all the... Social injustice. You could see there, especially in Brazil, you saw in the same country, maybe in the same city, people who don't have enough to eat and people who go into the glitziest and fancy shopping malls to to do their shopping there. So that was something that really stuck with me, and I I want to do to know more about it, to do something about it. So I did, I went to Stockholm, studied global health for a year. In the meantime, me and my now ex-girlfriend um, had a child, and she did not want to go abroad further or stay in Stockholm, so we decided to go back here to, to Germany, and I ended up in working in hospital consulting for, for the last two years. That was a little bit about my medical um, career, but it definitely informed my, my photography a lot, especially the course in global health opened my eyes to the big, big problems we, we still have in, in our world that there's still so many kids dying from from sim- really simple diseases like cold and diarrhea and pneumonia that it would be easily treatable. Yeah, so that was that was very, uh, very, very strong influence. And I always wanted to, to work in the, in the humanitarian sector and focus my work in that direction too.
0: It's one thing to know about such disparity intellectually. It's another thing to witness it firsthand how did that change you when you when you went abroad and you went to Brazil and you actually saw it with your own eyes how did that impact you personally
1: it had a huge impact on me I still remember one day we were in um, in Belém, the in the north of of Brazil and we were walking to we were looking for a shopping mall so we' were walking there and when we we walked we were walking along a ditch that was filled with like black foul smelling stinking water and there were people living right next to it the the water was like literally black it looked like tar and the smell was so bad we had to cover our noses to to just walk past there and then five minutes later we walk into that shopping mall with air condition we can pretty much buy anything you want and that was yeah literally like half a mile apart that really showed to me like Maybe in Brazil more than, than everywhere else in, in South America, that there's such a huge disparity. And it, was, it made me really, really sad. It impacted me really on a, on a very deep level. And I, I suddenly felt the, the need to, to go do something about it to, to try and change, which is obviously a very bad intent, a very big intention. One of the things that, that I often hear
0: about people that are living under those kind of conditions is when other people who don't have to witness it make judgments about who you know what kinds of people these are you know they're dirty people they're criminals that you know if they wanted better they'd make some different choices you know it's it's more of a judgment about the individuals than it is about the overall circumstances that kind of lead to that ultimately they see it as you know they see it as an issue of personal responsibility coming from your world in, in 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 germany i i i'm sure that it's Very similar in many respects to attitudes here in the United States, but how did you come to
1: terms with those perspectives when you were witnessing it? Yeah, um, that's, I think, a very, very important topic. People don't see that poverty is, most of the time, is pretty much inherited. So you come out of poor circumstances, and um, you don't even get the chance to, to go to a good school, to... Um, you don't even have the friends that would encourage you to to work hard or to to go to school um your parents probably won't do it it's actually it's it's similar here in in germany we We have about six million people in Germany that um have a turkish background uh so that's around eight percent of the of the population but in in med school there were hardly any people with a turkish background so you you can see the the disparity is not only in in Brazil and latin america it's it's everywhere It's kind of the same same judgment here. People say, "Oh they're lazy they they don't want to learn German. they don't wanna um study hard, but they don't see many of those kids here in germany mm-hmm. they They go to school and they never actually spoke German in their lives because at home everyone speaks turkish and um so they start with a major disadvantage, and that disadvantage is. Very, very hard, if at all possible, to to make up, and that really that that shows in yeah in education and then in careers and in the distribu distribution of wealth. Well,
0: your project involves the the current European refugee crisis that's that's happening there, and it's come to a the public's attention largely because of the uh, uh, the Syrian civil war, which started back in two thousand eleven. Tell me about your your initial awareness of, of, of the crises you know living in, in, in Germany what when it started first coming to your attention, how did how did you
1: perceive it and how did your, your friends and family perceive it at the time? Um, so my very first personal encounter with the crisis was when I was boarding a train that was supposed to go to Munich in, in the little town of Rosenheim. It's pretty much it's very close to Salzburg in the, in the Bavarian countryside. The, the train just didn't leave, and uh, I already seen that there are many people on the train with big bags and looked like kind of Middle Eastern. And uh, s- suddenly the police came through and they they started pulling people out. And in my opinion, they were pretty, pretty treating them pretty rough. So I I called them out and said like, why would you? Wouldn't you be a little bit more welcoming to those people? And why wouldn't you? just represent Germany in, in a better way. This is the, their very first contact with Germany. You're yelling at them. Yeah, I even ended up um, writing a complaint to the police. They even got back to me and said they were advising their, their officers to be more polite with the refugees. And that, that was summer 2015, exactly, so yeah, almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. And when big uh, numbers of refugees started to arrive in, in Germany, there was actually... A, very, like, we even call it welcoming culture. Um, one day, there were 10,000 refugees arriving at Munich Central Station by train, and there were people cheering for them and handing them food and drinks. Our chancellor, Angela Merkel, said, uh, we're going to do it. We can, we can do this. When, when more and more people started coming, the, the right-wing seized opportunity to, I guess, pretty much spread fear about Islam and just to... To advance their own causes by by instilling fear in the population, that of obviously was was worsened by the um, Paris attacks that took place in uh, I think it was in October, mm-hmm. and then in on New Year's Eve we had a occurrence in Germany in where uh, allegedly um, women were assaulted, sexually assaulted by um, immigrants, and they at the time said they were, they had been refugees, which later turned out not to be true. There were, uh, some immigrants that were from, from the Maghreb, uh, Maghreb states of northern Africa. Um, so and those two events were a real turning point. You could pretty much feel how public opinion turned against refugees, how the right-wing got more attention, and in, unfortunately, in pretty much all over Europe, the, the right-wing parties are on the rise now. In some parts of Germany, in the last elections, they got up to twenty percent. And their main topic is really stop immigration, stop uh, stop the refugees, pretty much. And that, in turn, has led to a lot of countries on the Balkans closing their borders, and um, to the very, very devastating s- situation we're in now. So, uh, how did you transition from being uh, a doctor into being a photographer? How did you
0: come to start soliciting, you know, work as a as a shooter?
1: I wanted to do that for, for the last two or three years, but as a dad and, and I always thought, no, you have to have a proper job, quote unquote, and you can't be a photographer. Well, after breaking up with my with my ex-girlfriend, I, I went through a pretty bad time and I started really thinking about my lo- life and reflecting, where do I want to go, what do I want to do with my life? And I realized that that is one of the, the major points I really want to do. So. Um, I started saving and um, I'm on hiatus now for for half a year and then uh, so I was, I, I'm building up my portfolio I'm working as an assistant building contacts and in a few months I'll probably try and get a part-time job at the hospital so I'll have something to fall back on if that's if, if money's not coming in so I can still provide for my for my daughter Emma. Yeah that's the way I'm, I try to to work in to photography I've even during med school I've been working as an assistant for a photographer who's doing a lot of healthcare stuff, uh, healthcare commercial shootings, pretty big for some German companies. Mm -hmm. And that was obviously interesting for him because I had more insight in in medical things and I I was interested in photography too. So he he made me his digital assistant. That's how I kind of started to to assist. Yes, I'm slowly working my way into it and Well, we'll see how it goes on. Hopefully one day I'll be able to to just live from photography.
0: So your project is with a photographer named uh, Riley Draper, uh, who's from Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee. Tell me about your collaboration with him, because uh, one of the things that you were doing is you actually doing some video video recording and editing. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about that collaboration, how it came about.
1: Um, So I met Riley through... Friends in Belgrade, which in turn i'd met through my um volunteering work with uh, with refugees, mostly in serbia we'd been in, co- in touch on on facebook and after my my first visit to Idomeni, he probably i guess he saw a video or pictures on on facebook and um he was saying hey i'm I'm planning a portrait project in Idomeni, and maybe you want to come along i haven't been there i don't know we were on there, so would would be very helpful, and I told him I I'd be definitely interested, and in, um, that I would like to take my large format gear. We thought that would be a very very good addition to to his thirty five millimeter uh, film shooting of the refugees. And on the way, we're just talking through it, and I, I took my digital camera, on my Sony as well, and I was telling him about the videos I was making the the last few months, and we came up with the idea just to document his process of shooting and his approach to it and we conducted a small interview in the end and it ended up being the voiceover for the video and it was very very interesting to actively watch some other photographer work and approach people and um document the process
0: and and let's explain people uh what uh, where Idumini is and 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 what it is i think because a lot of people are hearing about the immigrants coming into, into Europe, it's important to understand that the great majority of, of refugees from not only Syria, but also Afghanistan and Eritrea uh, are primarily in, in border states like Lebanon, Turkey, Iraq. But because of the just the poor and t- t- deteriorating uh, conditions in those countries, a lot of the immigrants are making efforts to come into the EU. Because, and because of international laws, there are, you know, there's supposed to be um, certain safeguards. And it's set up so that um, refugees from countries are treated in, in, in certain ways. And so they're, they're hoping that they can get into the EU and, and find a, a better alternative to being in those camps. And one of those countries is, is Greece, which for the last several years has been having its own economic crisis, which makes matters all the worse, not only for the immigrants, but for the people in that country. But I think it's important to have that sort of primer. But if you can expand on that, it, it would be very helpful to, to lead into what you actually witnessed when you got down there.
1: Sure. Um, the main route for refugees to get to Europe, and most of them actually want to come to Germany because of work opportunities, was leading, talking about the Syrians first, um, from the camps in in Jordan and Turkey, through Turkey. Um, they are um, crossing the mediterranean by boat and um, they ended up on the on the greek islands from there they take ferry to the mainland many arrive in, in athens and and then they travel up through greece in direction of the balkans on the main route the next country then is is macedonia then they continue into serbia and in the beginning they went through hungary then the hungarian border was closed so the route shifted to croatia and slovenia and then through Austria to Germany. And as I said, when the, um, the whole situation changed and um, the, the Central European countries were afraid that too many refugees were coming, um, Macedonia started building a border fence as well and, and severely limiting the numbers of refugees that were allowed into, uh, into um, Macedonia and onto the Balkan route. And that led to the development of a, of a very, very big camp. It's, it's a makeshift camp. It's not like a proper planned out camp in, in Idomini. It's a small Greek town right on the Macedonian border, which is pretty much the only point of passage for, for the refugees to get into Macedonia. And when I was there first, they were still letting people through, around 50 people a day, so 10 families. The whole camp had grown to 12,000 people. And um, then later they decided to completely close the border and there's still 10,000, probably 10 to 12,000 people there. They're desperately waiting for the border to open. And as I said, there's it's a makeshift camp. The Greek go- government does not want to endorse people to, to actually stay there, so they don't provide proper like, big tents and, and heating. And most of the people actually stay in in small like camping tents, very cheap ones that that you would get at a supermarket. And many of them have been there for up to six weeks now. It's there were torrential rains. The whole the whole camp was turned into mud. People were staying there with with babies, with their whole families in in small tents. It's it's very very sad to see.
0: Was it uh, fairly easy to get there and gain access?
1: Yeah, there's no no control whatsoever to get into the camp. Everyone can pretty much just walk in there. There's like one police car that stops people from driving in. But uh, the, the camp doesn't have any borders. You can pretty much walk in from, from any side. And it's really sprawling across the fields. And the, there's an abandoned train station now. Refugees are some of the refugees are staying in abandoned trains or in abandoned houses. I recently put up some some pictures on on my Instagram of that, and it's really it's it's crazy to see. You have train tracks and left and right, train tracks that are actually still being used, and like left and right, you have rows of tents and really thousands of people living, sleeping there.
0: I mean, you use the word makeshift, and I think it's it it's hard to visualize. How a makeshift camp of twelve thousand people looks like. Can you really, you know, give us some examples of what you witnessed, what you were experiencing? I mean, that can you know sort of viscerally get across what you were experiencing when you when you got there.
1: When you approach the camp on the on the main road, the first thing you you realize is there's big groups of, of refugees walking. You see some tents that are just pitched next to the road, and they kind of get more and more. Then you you see like it, it's it's it used to be a field, I guess, and there's probably like two to three hundred tents pitched there. You you can there's smoke everywhere because everyone has to cook on their own campfires. You see people just sitting left and right to the road, and as I said whenever it rains, the the whole thing just turns in into mud. As weird as it m- might sound, like the f- several th- people said the same, when you first approach it, it looks like a like a music festival from from far away. You see fires, lights, um, but when you get there, you realize it's actually it's a it's a festival of sadness and and of um, of despair that that's going on there. And it's, in the beginning, when there's still people being led through, there was still some kind of spirit of we can do it, we can we will eventually get to, to Europe to safety. But last time I was there, when the border was completely closed, tensions started to rise and uh, people were really frustrated and um, some even said they might go back to, to Syria, to civil war, instead of just like um, being forgotten there and uh, sitting in the mud without anything they could possibly do to improve their situation.
0: And how did they respond to you and to Rowley coming in with you know with cameras and asking questions? Were they very open to you? Was there some resistance? Tell us about, you know, being able to come in there with cameras and with video cameras and to start documenting what was happening there.
1: First of all, there's a lot of um, photographers, video crews. They're pretty much 24-7, I guess there's some photographers around. So people are used to it, but still I try to I try to be very respectful and ask for permission before I take a photo of someone or, or videotape them. And many people were covering their face. And first I thought they do that because they just don't want to be photographed. But then someone told me they're afraid that ISIS or, or the Assad regime back in Syria might see those images and see that they've left the country and take revenge on their, on their families that are still in Syria. Mm. And I think that's a very important thing to know when you go there, that when people... Are covering their face, they don't do it for themselves, but they they do it because they're afraid for the safety of their families and that was very very shocking to me actually that um having just having your photo taken and the photo ending up on the internet might lead to your family being harmed or killed uh, so we I always try to to talk to people first I say some some words and the the people there are so very welcoming It was so easy, even though um many don't speak English. They they offer you seed at their campfire. You've been offered tea and food, and really, it was I was almost ashamed when I was I was taking photos of a of a small girl and the, uh, she was she was playing a bit with with my camera. and told her how to take photos with it, and then she the family insisted on on giving me an apple, even though I could clearly see that they didn't have much. they were just cooking on, on a campfire, and really had to. To see where they get their daily food from, and in the end, I had to take the apple. They would not, they would not back down. And others, as I said, they they invited us to to dinner with them and to sit with them. And um, they're so very, very warm and welcoming. People It was incredible. When you and Riley decided to go down to the refugee camp, what ideas did you have for what you wanted to achieve? So when we started out, the idea was actually to to do a portrait project. Riley had an exhibition in in Belgrade scheduled. There was Within the space where a conference was uh, taking place that tried to to develop solutions for the refugee crisis, he wanted to to get some more shots of um, to to show off there at the at the exhibition. When he asked me about a portrait project, I I just said the idea to to come and uh, do more like a studio set up down there, like um like as I said with my large format camera because I never actually took many portraits with my large format camera before so um, and we thought that might actually complement each other pretty well the riley's more spontaneous 35 millimeter shot on film too on a, on a leica very very direct very like out of the like within the context and then my idea was more to to take people out of the context as refugees and show them as as people and to, to make people think about they're not not just refugees, but they're actual people who who have their own lives and they're not that much different from from us really. Mm-hmm. So and I, we thought those two approaches would, would complement each other pretty well.
0: I mean walking into an environment like that with so many people with so much stuff happening, it can be like sensory overload. It can be difficult to try and figure out, okay, what do I start doing first? How did you navigate that? How did you figure out a way to remain focused that so that you could be as effective as you possi- possibly could be there?
1: I guess I took a similar approach to what I do when I when I go out photographing with my large format camera uh, for for my other personal projects. I first take a walk around without the without the camera. I just try to to get an overview of what's going on there and um, what are the surroundings. What's the the overall situation what's the what's the mood like as well is there there a lot of tension because obviously bringing a camera into an environment you don't know anything about can might cause problems it hasn't happened to me yet but it definitely could so i usually just walk around with my with my iphone which i kind of use like a almost like a visual diary i just snap photos and i even have an app on the phone that allows me to to simulate different lenses uh, on my cameras so you can even check out what angle of view might be might be best, and what what lenses to bring, and then I go back and I just try to to make a very rough plan what I what I want to include in the story, kind of. The, yeah, the, that approach actually has been informed a lot of of me starting to shoot video, mm-hmm. where you just have to plan out the storyline before you start shooting. Otherwise, you just end up with tons of footage, and then you just miss the the critical junk that would allow you to, to tell, tell a complete story and so that, that is what I try to do with my photography now as well.
0: On April 16th, I'll be teaching a street photography workshop here in Los Angeles through the Los Angeles Center of Photography. It's a full day course in which I teach you about the core features of your camera, how to capture images on the street, how to consider light and shadow, and waiting for that telling gesture. And then it culminates with us sitting down and doing a critique of the images that have been produced by all the participants. It's a really fun day and some amazing images are made. And I hope that if you're in the Los Angeles area during that weekend, that you'll consider joining us. You can find out more and sign up by visiting the LACP website at lacphoto.org. Links will also be found on the show notes and on the website. Hope to see you there. Well, tell me about the choice to work with a large format camera under these kind of conditions, because I think most people think about photojournalists working with you know DSLRs and cameras of that sort to do it. But you know, you go in there with a large format you're taking on a whole different set of challenges as as a photographer in a situation
1: which is already pretty difficult. Um yeah, when I when I finally took my large format camera out, I'd been around there for a while and I'd gotten to know some people and my my original plan had been to shoot outdoors in in the shade somewhere in front of a of a white backdrop somewhere with nice light and the day when I finally wanted to do it woke up rain and it was really storm actually so I was, you know, couldn't even I brought a, a backdrop like a white studio backdrop with me as well and I was pretty sure I couldn't set that up anywhere so I was just walking around was a little bit disappointed actually because there was pretty much the whole point of the trip to to take those large format photos and I ran to into some some refugee friends I'd met on the on the first trip to Idomeni and they took me to one of the abandoned buildings where they were staying. And one of the rooms was had a window and next to the window there was there was still empty space. And I just had the idea, well, why don't we set it up indoors? And that was definitely difficult. There was not a lot of light. I was shooting the lens wide open so at f5.6 and had to use a shutter speed around half to one second. My subjects had to be to be really steady and couldn't move a lot, but yeah they when they realized that this was not just a, a photo project that wanted to like document them as refugees, but that was actually interested in, in them as people they were they were really so excited they helped me setting up the whole thing they were carrying stuff, and they they were so cheerful and it was such a great day that was actually that was the first time in my life when I realized that just the act of taking someone's photo could really make a difference in their lives. That was that was actually that was a very, very emotional day for me. And when when we left they one of the guys gave me a small present which I'm wearing all the time now. It's a small stone that has some some signs engraved and he told me that's an artifact from old Palmyra, a place that ISIS had destroyed just two months ago, I guess. And that has now been liberated by um by Syrian forces. Yeah, so and that that was a place I always wanted to, to visit and go see and I was I was really sad when I heard that it was it was destroyed and was a site that it was more than two thousand years old. And he just gave me that as a present. I told him to keep it, that he might be able to, to sell it when when he get to Germany or when he need money and he, he insisted and it really showed me that was it meant a lot to them, that just taking those photos and I definitely want to go back and want to continue that work and want to bring them some, some prints as well of the, of the photos I took. And I'm still, I'm still in touch with them on, uh, on WhatsApp and Facebook, and I see their photos, and I know that they're still in, in Idomini, still waiting for the borders to open. So I hope when I go back down, hopefully next week, uh, I can catch up with them again.
0: You know, one of the most interesting things about this whole thing is that the role of the cell phone. In the experience of these refugees, that they're using it as a way of communicating, as a way of navigating, uh, as a way of just being connected. It really is a, a remarkable facet of, you know, of a, of a modern day migration crisis, a refugee crisis that utilizes modern technology as a way of not only being able to communicate, but to actually tell the story in in almost real time. What, what insights did you get into that when you got there? Because it's one thing to see it on, on the news. But can you tell us about how these people were utilizing that technology as part of their efforts to be able to, to get to where they were going and also just to survive?
1: Yeah, first thing you, you realize is that pretty much everyone has a cell phone. And there was a lot of um, bad talk in, in Germany about that. You know, look at those refugees, they all have cell phones, they can't be how not be really doing so bad. You have to understand that this is the one critical item you, you need on the road. And the first thing they do when they get to a new country is buy a SIM card that has data and um, go online. You can communicate with your families in, in Syria, tell them that you're okay, obviously. Um, but you can use maps on it. You can, you can um, exchange information in the early days of the crisis in, in summer and in the autumn of last year. That was actually even a problem for authorities because the informations were flown so quickly that one day 3,000 refugees were um, arriving at one border crossing and then the big NGOs would try and go there and UNHCR and the Red Cross and they're setting up their tents and when they're finally set up after a week everyone had gone to a different border crossing so they're always chasing behind them and that was, from what i had been told because online they found information that this border crossing was not open at the moment, you should go to that one, or that one was faster. Yeah, so that definitely changed the the whole crisis, and one, one other thing that I found was very, very impressive is um, on their way from, that was for the, from the Afghans, many of them came through Bulgaria. For some reason, I still haven't completely understood, they had to walk t- uh, two days through the forests of bulgaria to get to the serbian border crossing they were using the cell phone as a na- navigation item you can you can imagine without military training you wouldn't probably be able to walk two days through a forest without uh, losing your way mm. so that was a critical item they all try to find places where to charge their their cell phones and um, yeah and, and just as I said, just um, the the opportunity to to exchange some words with your family that will probably help you a lot. In if you if you're desperate or if you're just sad, and many of them told me they're missing Syria a lot, and I, I guess that it just helps a little bit. Yeah, it's, it plays a major role.
0: What were there, some of the stories that you you heard about their their experiences in Syria that led them? to leave the country? Because we hear about how all the different factions in Syria, not only the Assad government, but um, all the different factions, um, extremist factions and all of that, are just creating just terror in, in that country. But what what personal stories did you hear there that surprised you, that, that made an impression on you?
1: Definitely... Um a boot story i would say that's an 18 year old boy who's just traveling by himself and his family had stayed behind in in syria because they just could not afford anyone else to to go to to europe because obviously you pay a lot of money some people pay five thousand euros alone just to be shipped across the mediterranean uh so it's hugely expensive and they just they decided to, to send their son to safety, and he was he was terribly missing his family in in Syria, and now he's stuck in in Idomeni and he's really struggling with what struggling with what to do. And what he was fleeing at home was the the terror of ISIS. Yeah, they're uh, they telling stories of how how people had been treated, that people were just thrown off uh, off the roofs of houses, and um, if they weren't. Complying with the with the Sharia law, that people were shot. Maybe one other story that was hopefully was not too graphic from the Kurdish area of Kobani. There, uh, there was a family, and they told me about an incident when you you probably heard that Kobani was was liberated from ISIS by uh, by Kurdish forces, and when. When the, the people came back, there were some uh, terrorists among them that came back and they somehow got hold of some rifles and just started shooting r- people randomly and uh, they killed around 250 people that day. Then they, they took another 80 hostage and uh, were digging in on a, on the top of a hill next to the town and they just started decapitating 80 people. That's That's a level of terror you can just not imagine. It's, that really left me left me speechless that someone would actually do that just yeah Yeah, i mean it's no surprise that
0: people are trying to escape escape that but on the other side of things you know in in europe and the united states and in australia there's there's so much resistance to people taking in these refugees largely because of fear of extremism of terrorism you know, the, the whole idea that, well, you can't guarantee that some of the people that are coming in are not terrorists themselves. So, you know, you shouldn't uh, allow them to, to come into any any country, which doesn't resolve the issue because these millions of people are still, you know, something has to be done. But having your first person experience with with that, when you hear that, what's, what's your response to people who say, Um, You can't allow any of these people in, you know, know, because a lot of these people are leaving and you don't necessarily have all the documentation that they would normally have if they were just migrating. You know, they're refugees, so they're not going to have the whole infrastructure is not designed, especially for this number of people coming into whatever country they're trying to get into. But what's your perspective on that now that you've had a chance to to meet some of these people when you hear the fact that, that the people see them more as a, as a threat than someone to be to be helped or assisted.
1: We happened to be in Idomeni on the day of the, the Brussels attacks. And we saw many, many um, people, and especially children, they were carrying um, signs and they were saying, sorry for Brussels. And they knew that they could just mean Something bad for them that, that would further restrict their ability to to get to Europe and, and actually stay there. And what many people don't understand is that those terrorists that commit the the bombings in in or the, the attacks in Paris and the in Brussels, they're exactly the same people. Those refugees are running from. Maybe not all of them. Some are running from from the Assad regime, but many are running from the the terror of of ISIS. And we're out of fear for for the same things to happen again. Just try, want to not let them into to your countries, and we we pretty much making them all terrorists. And there there's a human right to to asylum, and I think everyone should be be treated as if they're um if they're not guilty unless they're proven guilty. So just to make Five million people, um, terror suspects. That's just just incredible. I, I don't understand it. I guess there's a lot of fear being leveraged for political reasons too. You can definitely see that in in Germany. There's the the right wing parties, as I already said. They're pretty much on our all time high here in, in Germany and in in all of Europe since World War Two. And that is mainly not only but mainly due to the refugee crisis and due to the the fear people instill in in the population here.
0: What what is your hope that the work that you and Riley are creating will will help? How 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 do you want these images and the videos that you've produced? What
1: what what do you want the outcome to be? Two things. First of all, I want to I want people to understand what the condition is. The people are living there, and it's really inhuman conditions and. There's so much desperation, and um, unfortunately, in the in the last weeks, tensions were rising too. And I think two days ago, some refugees were clashing with the police and trying to break through the border, and the police was using tear gas, and it all ended up pretty ugly, from what I saw on the news. But um, even that instance, there were other refugees that were trying to to get in between police and the the rioting people, which is always a small group, and um, to um, to end this uh, this really nasty scene, and um, so yeah, we sh- we have to understand that the conditions there are really bad, and those those people are fleeing from from terrible things, and they're now in a in a very desperate position because they they cannot go back and they they cannot go on. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing we really have to understand is that those are people just like us. They're, I I talk to doctors. I talk to lawyers i i met a whole tv team from northern iraq there there was a cameraman and there was a news presenter and a news editor and they they're from a, from a tv station in northern iraq and they're all on the run together and uh, so they're not not uneducated they're very very nice and many of them very educated people um they're not poor many of them actually do have have resources in the they're just running from really, really terrible things, and they're doing what we would do too, in, if we we're in the same situation. Yeah, it's just we have to we have to find the compassion again for for these people. We have, many many people seem to have lost that some somewhere along the way in the in the last year.
0: Well my my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that one photographer be and why
1: I'm going to pick two I guess so um I really really admire the work of of Mark Power he's a photographer from England and he's working with large format stuff as well, and um, as a member of magnum he 's doing documentary and journalism work with large format, and he's been very influential f- for me and I would actually love to hear talk to him one day it's I think it'd be very interesting what he what he'd say and um, I think he'd been recommended previously on your show Alex soth would be uh, the, the second one I definitely recommend he 's working with large format too and doing some some very incredible. Work is a bit more conceptual than than Mark Powers, I guess, but um, they've been working together too on some projects. So they are very very interesting people. And um, oh yeah, maybe just short notice on a guy from from the photographer from the UK who went to Congo and was shooting there on infrared film. You might have seen that online. That is, those were incredible images. He shot large format too and uh, eight millimeter. Film. He goes by the name of his name is Richard Moss, M O S S E, and this the, the the Congo project is really incredible. The the idea behind it is kind of that infrared is invisible, as is the the conflict in in Congo that's been going on for so many years, and no one's talking about. And bringing this together, he created those credible, incredible pink landscapes. You, you definitely have to, to go see it if you don't know. it's There's a documentary on Vimeo called The Impossible Picture. So that's one more thing to check out.
0: And where can people go to find out more about you and,
1: and your work? My homepage would be a good place to start. It's Svenmarkusrichter.com And obviously on Facebook where I just post updates. And um, from there you can find my Instagram if that's interesting to you. That's the three main things. I've, I've got a Vimeo as well, which I'm mainly used to to be able to post videos and then you know, get them to other sites. friend, well, thank you so much for making the time for me
0: this morning. It was a, really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you.
1: Thanks so much for the time and for talking about that really, really important topic with me. Thanks for our next.
0: Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Paulie for his five-star review of the show. You could also support the show by donating any amount through our PayPal account. Your donations over the years have helped us to improve the quality of the show and played an important role in us being able to create the Candid Frame phone app and making it available for free. Thanks to Matt Grun and Jan D. Armour. For their donations to the show, it makes a big difference. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, and you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is X and this is The Candid Frame.